If you have your Bibles, if you'll take your Bible with me as we say our Bible decree. Are you thankful to have the Word of God? Amen. All right, let's say our Bible decree together. This is my Bible, God's holy Word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, Lord, with just hearts that are open and receptive to what you have for us. Father, today, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know what journey I'm going on, but I know the message that you've placed and rested upon my heart and in my mind. But God, I'm here to do whatever you want me to do. I'm here to rest and bask in your glory. So, Father, in the stillness and quietness of this room, we welcome your spirit here. And, Lord, we pray that you'll teach us from your truths. And, Father, that we'll be able to walk away realizing that we can run in victory, no longer feel lamed and crippled by, by the sins, by the guilt, by the shame of this world. And so, Father, we pray that you'll just encourage us today. And all God's people said, Amen. Today I'm going to be speaking on destroying the shame. Every week we've been discussing shame and what does shame look like in our lives. If you'll take uh, your Bibles and turn with me to, I feel a strong pulling. Hebrews chapter 12. I was going to start on in 2 Samuel, but we're going to go right to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we talk about shame. And as you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to hear what I'm saying. And I want you to say this with me. If we understood our position, it would change our condition. So if we understood our position, it would change our condition. Now, we came to church today because we realized that we all want to gain something from the Word of God, and we want to be taught by God's Word. And so as we look here in the Hebrews chapter 12, I like what the writer has to say. And last week, I emphasized verse number 2. And so God's throwing me a curveball right now, but that's okay because I'm going to follow him right where we're going. We're in the game together. Amen? And uh, so we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, and it's verse 1. Here's where God's discipline, where he proves his love for us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd, a great cloud of witnesses, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. As I, as I look at this text and I start to reflect upon shame and guilt in our life, I want to define for you what the dictionary has to say about shame as a person. Here's what it says. Shame as a person or a thing that brings disgrace, a feeling of distress caused by consciousness of guilt. Now, the pastoral dictionary defines it like this. Shame as a feeling which follows when a person realizes that there, that there has been a failure to live up to an ideal expectation. 
Alfred Edler said, he saw shame as linked to any sense of inferiority or insecurity. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Amen? No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Eric Erickson said, said shame, saw shame as an identity crisis. He related to the stage of toilet training where there is conflict between autonomy versus shame and doubt. Shame is a powerful tool to help a person change his or her ways for the better. Shame can be used therapeutically. And in the Bible, shame indicates a crushing hurt, which may be physical, but is more likely to involve destruction of pride and confidence. The prophets often relate shame as a national defeat. And shame can be a condition of disgrace and public distress. There is nothing worse than to have to carry around a sense of shame and guilt. Church, I'm here to tell you that when people say shame on you, you've heard it since you were a little toddler. Shame on you, you went pee-pee and poo-poo in your diaper. Well, then take the diaper off of me, and I won't have any shame about my pee-pee and poo-poo in my diaper. That was just my thought, you know. Shame on you because you didn't get a good grade. Shame on you because I was expecting you to be better at this sport than you were today. Shame on you that you talked back to me. Shame on you that you didn't pass 7th to 8th grade. Shame on you that you lied to me. Shame on you. Think about this. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. We have lived a life of feeling a sense of guilt and shame in every aspect of our life. With our parents, with our peers, with people at work, throughout our lifetime, we've had to carry guilt and shame. I want you to say this with me. We're looking Satan right in the eye. And say, shame off you. Get that shame off you. Jesus Christ came. He died. He went to the cross. Because there's power in the name of Jesus. And he said, every chain will be broken. Every sin will be gone. Because I'm going to the cross for your life. For the sins of this world. You no longer have to carry shame. You no longer have to carry guilt. Shame off you right now. In the name of Jesus. We live a life where everybody's always telling us, shame, shame, shame. This week, I'm in a meeting, and I walk away from the meeting thinking, did I sound stupid? When I spoke, it has drove me to insanity. And now I have to say, shame off me. Get behind me, for thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and only him shalt thou serve. We live a life of guilt, and when that starts to take place in our life because we think we don't measure up to somebody else, the only person you need to measure up to is Jesus Christ. So it says here, it says in this text that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So let us run this race with endurance, and no matter what sin trips you up, know that this, you keep your faith. Don't you worry about the left hand. Don't you worry about the right hand. Don't you worry about what's going on around you. You've been the best version of what God created you to be. Oh, come on. This sounds like a prosperity gospel message. Okay, so it is. Here's reality. Sin is wrong. And exactly what the Bible says, sin trips us up. Amen? It puts us in a place of torment, of pain, of pain. 
of tribulation, of trials, of self-examination. This is what shame actually does to us, church. It makes you feel anger. It makes you feel abandonment. All these emotions start overcoming you because you go, but you don't understand. You didn't see my life before. Well, praise the Lord. I don't have to see your life before. The Bible says you are a new creation. You're a new creature. So walk in the newness of Christ. We sit and bask in our misery. Well, we realize that it says misery loves company, right? But watch what it says here in, I believe it's verse 2. Because I'm getting older and I probably should have bifocals in the bottom of this. Just kidding. Because of the joy awaiting him. Church, if we don't let go of the shame, we will take residence to it, we'll reside in it, and we'll live a life that's not joy-filled. You need to walk in joy, walk in victory. Now, yeah, okay, so I'm here teaching this, but hold on a minute. It says keep the faith. Oh, you don't understand. My family hates me now because I divorced. He, you know, they thought that, that my wife or my husband, they, they thought he walked on water. Well, they didn't live with him. They didn't live with her. <laughs> so reality is this. We live a life filled with shame and embarrassment and guilt because we try to measure up to what our in-laws or somebody else has to say. So church, I'm here today just to tell you this. You can let it go. You just let it go. Let God move. Know that awaiting you is joy around the corner. See, Satan is always there to destroy any potential that you have. He wants to take you down where you're at. He doesn't want the church at 226 Southeast Avenue to to excel or to exceed any more than he wants any other church that's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community to exceed or excel. Because he's there to trip us up. Take your Bible, look back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. In biblical times, I just wish they would have made names easy, like Todd, Brad, Art, Russ. But they give you names like Mephibosheth. So I have to practice it like 25 times to 50 before I even preach a sermon on Mephibosheth. See? Because if not... My tongue will get hung up in the gap between my teeth, and it will not come out properly. So as I read this text, we just pray and hope that it comes out exactly how it's supposed to sound. Amen? So here's the story of Mephibosheth and what he went through in his life. Okay, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba. Who, see, why wasn't Russ right there or Art or something? Ziba, yes sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. 
in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Makar's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. David said unto him, don't be afraid. I tended to show show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandsons everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of offspring. Travis and Heather, 15. <laughs> 15. They found out this week they're, they're having baby number seven. I mean, I'm sorry, baby number four. So anyhow, just want you to know, 15 children. I want to see that work out for you. Anyhow, so did your mom and dad. Zebra replied, yes, my lord, the king. I'm your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young name, Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. So God, help me get all these names right and tell this story exactly like you want me to say it. The story of Mephibosheth, he had a brother. His name was Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth, his name means man of shame. But Mephibosheth, his name interpreted means man who destroys the sheep. Remember the story of David and Goliath? There was David, there was Goliath, there was the Palestinian army, there was King Saul. There was his armor-bearer, Abner, that was there. Jonathan was present. All these people were present. And this little dude comes running up with some stones and a slingshot. And he starts to say, I've, I've got this. And they're like, you've got what? You're a scrawny little snotty-nosed kid. You have nothing on this big giant. You know, in the Bible, giants were huge. I mean, they were big. Have you ever stood next to somebody that's really big? And they make you feel like you're about that big? Well, I can't even I can't even imagine coming up against Goliath. And so there stood Abner, and Abner was was such a great armor bearer of King Saul. And he saw what David did. But then there was all this hurt and shame that took place in Abner's life. And then sin started to creep up. Remember this, this. Shame. An action causes a what? An action causes a reaction. We have to be very, very careful because what started to take place was all these guys that were in the army started to turn on Abner. 
You know why they turned on Abner? Because Abner said, I'm leaving King Saul because King Saul has lost his mind, he's lost his way, and I'm going over to be the armor bearer to King David. I don't know if you all know that. He was highly respected and highly regarded until one of the soldiers walks in and stabs him in the stomach and kills him. Well, everybody had their vendettas, and, and, and so Ishphabeth, I had to spit that out there, the brother, who at that time was king, they were all mad because he took this maidservant and slept with that maidservant, and there a bunch of sin was going on, because remember, an action causes a... So they go in in the middle of the night, and they kill him while he's sleeping. Well, King David made a promise. He said, Abner, I love you. And, and even when Abner was, was murdered and Ishbabeth was murdered, the town just grieved. And David was angry and said, who are the two gentlemen that took the life of that king? Well, the, the two gentlemen that came right to King David, they were, all, they, they were like, this is so cool because look what we've done. And here's his head. He's like, no, that is not the promise I made before God. I made a vow. And so here's what I'm doing for you, church. I skipped a bunch of chapters to try to paraphrase it for you for sake of time because I know you have roast on today. And uh, you're going to Pizza Hut. And some of you are going to Taco Bell and eating Chipotle. I just want to make sure we're out of here on time. Just kidding. So what happened was David said, wait a minute. Hold on. I've got to destroy the shame. I've got to do something about this. And he said, I want those two guys murdered. I want their heads cut off. We're going to let the world know what they've done was wrong. See, their reaction caused an action. And when sin starts to, to creep up in people's lives, and that's what we talk about on Thursday nights at New Hope for Recovery. If you're not doing anything and you want to come, it's been a great time. You come and, and get involved and learn the 12 principles, the 8 principles, the, the prayer. The, I mean, it's awesome that hear, hearing the testimonies. And uh, this past Thursday was amazing, but... These men were not held accountable until they came before King David. And David said, now I feel a sense of shame. So we went from one person to the next person. Isn't that what shame does? Shame makes us feel so guilty that we start lying about everything. And so Mephibosheth, who was... Just a five-year-old boy when King David came in and took over King Saul's land. He was a little boy. He was five. And what happened to him was, and it says there in the latter part of the text, that he was lame, that he was crippled. He was crippled in both feet. You know why? All because of the sin that took place in his grandfather's life his father's life now he has to suffer because of generational and ancestral sins so the nurse grabbed a hold of him when they came into the camp to take him and she dropped him and he became lame he was crippled and it puts me in mind of when I look at this text and we can look even back into Second Samuel where it says that he was lame and I started thinking, isn't that exactly what shame does to all of us? It cripples us. 
it will cripple you and take you down to well, you, you will no longer serve. You will not be active in your family. You won't be active in relationships. Sometimes when we do things that are wrong, we won't even go before anybody and confess our sins before them because we're so ashamed of what we've done that Satan just keeps us in bondage. The chains were locked down, and so he's having a heyday. But I'm here to tell you, when the Bible says confess your faults one to another, so you may be, say that again, so you may be, so you may be healed. Oh, when the pastor says that's not right, just say, I'm sorry. We, I mean, it's really simple. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It's very simple. We're not perfect, church. There's none righteous. No, not one. We're all sinners. People have a tendency to remove themselves. I put here in my notes. They remove themselves from the body of Christ. Because they're ashamed of what they've done. Many of us need to surrender our will and pray and ask God, please help me through this. People are not interested in destroying the shame because they have become a detached spectator. Many people have simply lost their desire to make a meaningful contribution to the kingdom of God. Some people even lost their faith and do not even know it, but are ashamed to admit it. And today we are living... In a shameless and guiltless culture, listen, where there is nothing absolutely right or nothing absolutely wrong as long as you can tolerate it. Our culture believes that pleasure is more important than purity. We have substituted biblical righteousness for political correctness. What God called an abomination, we call it alternative lifestyles. What we call common law marriage, God calls it fornication. What we call an affair, God calls it adultery and fornication. The glory of God will not fall until the spirit of shame has been removed from our life. If we want to remove the spirit of shame, we cannot take God out of the picture. And we cannot substitute another form of God for the true and living God of the Bible. We want the glory of God, then we must break the spirit of shame from our life, from our family, from our church, and from the things that we do and from the things that we say. When the shame is destroyed, we'll be the head and not the tail. A table will be presented before us in the presence of our enemies. When shame is destroyed, we will live in Jerusalem physically, mentally, socially, psychologically and financially. When this happens, my friends, we will exchange the garment of shame for the garment of praise. Hallelujah. But he was lame in both feet. And there are people here in this room that are lame in both feet and they are afraid to admit it. They are lame to the things that will get them moving, get them going, get them growing, like praying and fasting, like reading the Word of God, like loving one another. Many people today are lame from when when they were a baby Christian. They're lame 10 years, maybe even 20 years ago. They have covered their lameness with band-aids. But still they have not yet managed to destroy the shame. And they are still bound up in the past and seize moment to leave Lodabar and get to Jerusalem. Mephibosheth was in Lodabar. Actually, Lodabar means nothingness. 
So they were all excited that they got something. They got nothing for something. Nothing. They're still in Lodabar making excuses about why things are not different in their lives. They have become one with the disease of lameness until they have developed a psychological dependency. They're always looking for someone to babysit them, carry them around on their back, and many people become immobile like the man who was at the pool of mercy, at the pool of Bethesda, waiting for someone to put him into the water when the angel stirs up the water in John chapter 5. Physiology of our body tells us that if our muscles are not used, they will become weak. Many people face, many people's faith muscles have become so weak they don't believe that God can turn impossible situations into reality. And fading. Did you hear me fading something, Elon? Okay. It continues. I'll grab this mic. Now, I want you all to know that I was fading a little. It's been two weeks since I've been to the mobility class on Wednesday nights. And when you don't move your muscles, get in a recliner. Sit in that recliner for one hour. Try to get up. I want you to spring out of there like you're 12 years old. Let's see what happens to you. When your feet give out, your ankles give out, your legs don't move like they used to move. And I'm like this. Honey, can you grab my walker? Because I'm telling you, that's how I feel when I get out of a recliner. No, I'm, I'm pulling this in here. They thought I lost my train of thought. I didn't. Some people love muscles have become so weak that they don't care to love anymore. Some people's prayer muscles have become so weak it is on verge of dying completely. Some people with their consecration and sanctification muscles are dead today. When muscles are dead, the body seizes up and a living organism becomes a dead organization. When muscles are dead, certain vital functions of the body are lost, like walking, running, feeding oneself. And before you know it, you are confined to a wheelchair. Weakness of the muscles can totally paralyze a person. It can turn a whole person into three-quarter of a person, and then half a person, then quarter of a person, then finally reduces that person to a baby once again. In church, I'm here to tell you that what's mostly most important is to destroy the shame and come out of Lodabar. Come out of the place where there's nothing. Come out of a place where there's nothing at all. Come to a place where we can walk in freedom. You heard me say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we all need to run the race of life. And all of us are competitors in the race of life, and we have a great cloud of witnesses. The witnesses are a great host watching us, and the foot race running for the winning post, and we are urged on by the crowd cheering us on. We're not encouraged to look at these witnesses, but look at Jesus. We all should think about us being runners in a relay race. And those who have finished their course have handed us the baton and are watching and encouraging us to keep going on. And in this church, I want to say we have such a great gallery of witnesses watching. And it is very important that we run well, so we are exhorted to throw off everything that hinders us. This excess bodily weight, similar to what an athlete sheds during training. You ever seen an athlete carrying around his suitcase while he was running? Or how about a backpack? How about this? Let's go ahead and just wait, put on a winter coat and let's run. It's not what they do. They shed the excess weight. Therefore, we as Christians should travel light. There's some things that are not wrong in themselves, but will hinder progress of our best efforts.
Bible says in verse 1, Beloved, let us get rid of these things, even every sin that so easily besets us. Sin form a crippling hindrance to good running. So it says let's run with perseverance. I want to encourage you, church, that let go of it. I know you've come here and you've lived a life. You know, being a teenager, being teased, being a pastor, that was that was not easy. And I still feel myself when I get in crowds like, oh, did I pronunciate something right or am I going to say something wrong? And, you know, there's always this pressure. You're standing up in front of people and you have to deliver a message. And every week my wife will say to me, are you okay this morning, Todd? And some days I'm not good and some days I am good. Some days I'm excited to preach something. Some days I'm, I'm nervous to preach something that the Lord has laid on my heart because it's not just for you, it's for me as well. But I've got to realize that I've got to let go and let God get rid of the shame, get rid of the guilt, get rid of the things people said. Listen, there isn't one person in this room that's perfect. But the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is here with us. So I bring this message to a finale. Where it says, how to destroy the shame. I love the, I love the, the hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Man, when, when you feel insecure, when you feel inferior, when you come on Thursday nights to New Hope for Recovery and you have to stand up and give your story, I love what we can kick it off by saying we are a great believer in Jesus Christ. Hi, my name is Todd. I'm not who I used to be. I know who I am in Jesus Christ. We have to let the world see that in us. Church, you're not crippled. Young man, you're not crippled. Young lady, you're not crippled. None of us are crippled. Because we have Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ that pumps through our veins. So how to destroy the shame. The psychology for moral behavior says, the moral behavior of people may be shaped by their own moral character which in itself is affected by their genetic makeup, may be shaped by social context in which the people's behavior is set in the nature of their relationships with significant people in their lives. The social psychologist says a person's experience and behavior is strongly influenced by other people. What these psychologists are saying, once a person is set in his or her own way, it is difficult to change. They are telling us that we are creatures of habit, and sometimes we can never get rid of those habits. But church, here's what the Scripture says, and here's how the Scripture supports all of us. Today, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation, and old things are passed away, and all things become new. How do we destroy the shame with the Word of God? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled." Shame on you and shame off you because I'm not living like this any longer. I'm pulling down all strongholds in my life and I'm going to run in victory. Ryan, you're different today because you made a choice to not believe what other people said to say, I'm walking in Jesus Christ. I can go through this room 
and go through each and every person as your pastor understanding what you've gone through. But let me tell you that, again, and I'm going to say this all the time, none of us are exempt from feeling the sense of shame. But I want you to know that you are a winner. You're not a whiner. You are a victor. You're not a victim. You are a child of the Most High God. You run like you are. You are anointed and you have you are highly favored in God. Don't you ever believe what those in your past told you when you were four years old? Don't you believe what those told you four days ago? Church, run the good race. Paul said, finish the course with joy. I love in that, in that text it says that we need to pull down the strongholds I love what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, casting down imagine every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And those that you thought were your friends, if they didn't lift you up and they were tearing you down, they were never your friend. See, the enemy wants us to believe that there's something good about that individual. Well, there isn't. You're not horrible. You're not awful. And church, I want you to believe you can say every time this comes around and the abuse that I went through just say shame off me shame off me I'm not going to believe this any longer so how do you destroy the shame by knowing the reality of God's word as he is so are we in this world he was a winner and he was more than a conqueror and so are we he endured the cross despised the shame so we can do it glory to God he reigns as king over the power of death and the curse, and we are reigning with him as kings. This is the revelation many Christians have not yet received. That Christ lives in us. He dwells in us. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The NIV puts the last clause of this verse this way. Listen closely. And the yoke will be destroyed from the pressure of the fat. You know what a yoke is. Are you familiar with the yoke? It goes around your neck and it's very heavy and it weighs down. Listen closely. What will happen here, beloved, is that the yoke itself will snap from the pressure of my fat strong enough against it. The application is this. In most instances, the yoke creates a wound in the fat flesh as it were in the oxen, by pressure. But here the opposite will occur because of the inner energy manifesting itself in the anointing. The fatness of the neck will lead to the destruction of the yoke. Some people have predicted that we never come out to be anything but the opposite occurs. Our necks are getting fat because of the anointing and the burden of shame has been removed off of our shoulders. Do you get the picture? Break that yoke. Be freed from that yoke. You, you are no longer crippled to shame and guilt. So finally in closing, to destroy the shame, it will take a therapeutic process. Are you ready? By accepting personal responsibility. By creating therapeutic relationships to stimulate positive change in each other's thoughts through 
honesty, your integrity, and the courage to make a difference by encouraging one another in love. The core of this therapeutic relationship is respect for each other with the confidence that we all can make a difference together. We must decide the future direction of our church and of our life. We must realize that we don't have to be victims of our past experiences. We can redesign our future. We can free ourselves of traditional shackles and accept the responsibilities that determine our future. I'm going to share this story with you. I was cleaning an account, and a lady looked at me, and she said, you know, we have a son who's been dealing with some hardships in his life. He feels alone, and he's been dealing with some mental illness. Depression has overtaken him. It's very, very difficult. And in this story, it was really cool. She said, she called me, and she said, would it be okay if he came in? He's in from California. And I said, well, certainly. My my office is open. So we sat together and were able to talk, and he shared his heart of his past. He shared his heart of the, the shame and the guilt of his life, of the things that people said about him and to him. And I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. As we were sitting there, I said, there's something I need to tell you. You can be free. How is that? You can be free in Christ. And he's like, how do you do that? I said, coming to know who Jesus Christ is. And I remember that day, that young man bowing his head and accepting Christ. And I said, I want us to do something. I want you to take all the shame in your life. Let's write it down. So he wrote it down. I wrote it down. And I'm leading up to something, but this is such a moving part to the story. Now, but he wrote it down. And I said, here's what we're going to do with your shame. He goes, what are we going to do? I go, we're going to tear it up. So I tore it up. And I threw it in my trash can. I said, nobody will ever see this. It's gone. It doesn't exist any longer. And I said, I want you to know this, that Christ loves you so much that you are a value to, to a lot of people. You're a value to your mother. You're a value to your father. Your value to your family. And I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. And this 30-year-old man looked at me, and he reached in his pocket. And he took this bottle of Valium, and he set it on my desk and said, Would you get rid of this before I get rid of myself? I'll never forget that moment because it was such a defining moment. He works for MGM Studios. I have been contacted by him. He contacted me a couple years ago to tell me he's doing well. And he said, I'll never forget something you said. If I understand my position, it would change my condition. So now I understand my position. And I no longer have to live with the guilt, with the abuse, with the pain any longer. I can run in victory. A simple conversation, church, to say, listen, we've got to destroy what others have told. That is not who you are. Stop believing it. And if you're in this room and you're believing the lies that Satan has put before you, I want you to let go of that shame, let go of the guilt, let go of the pain. 
I just want you to run in freedom. I want you to know that I stand up here today living a victorious Christian life because I didn't let what others said about me in my high school years determine the outcome or I wouldn't be standing up here as your pastor. I would have never made it to year number one or year number five or now we're 15. But I realized the importance of letting go, letting God and understanding that the shame and guilt of my life doesn't say who I am. I'm going to ask you to do something. In your heart and in your mind, maybe God brought something to the forefront of your life today. I'm going to ask you if you'll just take some of those things that you've been dealing with, some of the pain, some of the shame. It's not your fault. Church, it's not your fault. It was never your fault. And for those little things, yes, maybe you did drink the Kool-Aid when you weren't supposed to drink the Kool-Aid. Confess it. Let go of it. Get rid of it. CJ, being the moderator and leader of our New Hope for Recovery, sits up here every week, dances in victory. It's been two years, right? Almost two years sober. We have a church full of those that are recovering. Who's recovering in this room? Let's just give everybody a wave. Praise the Lord. We're all recovering. Praise God. That's, that's what it's about. We are here to get better, not bitter. And your pastor prays for you. And Jesus is right with you through all that you do. And you know what's great? Because he says, I'm here by you. I'm walking with you. He says, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. We're two or more gathered. I'm here. Thank you, Jesus, for being here today. So in the name of Jesus, and this is how you should pray. In the name of Jesus, I pull down the stronghold of whatever that is in your life. You said that if I would bring it captive to the forefront of my life and confess it, that you would get rid of it. So in the name of Jesus, you said whatsoever would be loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. Whatsoever would be bound on earth would be bound in heaven. So in the name of Jesus, I loose that I am a winner, not a whiner. That I'm a victor, not a victim. That I'm your child. That I'm going to run the great race that's set before me. And Satan has tried to destroy every bit of my, my life. I've walked in pain and in shame. And today, I'm going to walk in Jesus. So today, I loose all the junk in my trunk, and I'm walking in victory. He said, so then you bind. He says, whatsoever shall be bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. So we bind Satan in the name of Jesus Christ from getting victory. Listen, church, this is spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6. You take that prayer and you write it down and you say, so I bind Satan from, and you write those things down. I bind Satan from corrupting my mind, for, for impressing upon my soul that I'm not worth anything because I know I am in Christ. And today, I'm binding him from all the lies that he has told me. So when I pray, then I say it like this. And when you finish your prayer, always do it because there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. Then you will pray, in the name of Jesus, I command you to go. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? He said, get behind me, Satan, for thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and only him shalt thou serve. When he spoke of his father, and he fled, he went away. So in your pain, in your hurt, in your habit, in your hang-up, whatever it is, pray that prayer and say, God, hi, 
I'm your child, I'm back. Hi, God. I'm here. And he'll be there to open, to welcome you with open arms. Will you come to him? Let's all stand as we close. If you've been dealing with something in your life, some, some shame, maybe some pain, Maybe you can walk away with some confidence, victory, honor. Maybe people will say, now this individual is a goal-getter. They're a change agent. They're making changes for Jesus Christ. The reason why I love New Hope for Recovery is because I'm part of the same group of people living every day getting rid of my shame and getting rid of my guilt. So church, you're free. Jesus went to the cross for you. He shed his blood upon Calvary for you. Let me say you are free. You are free. Indeed. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for for your love and for your mercy. Thank you, Father. For your availability. Thank you, Father, for being with us. And in this room, there's somebody that has been dealing with some shame that, that has nothing to do with them. So, Father, I bind Satan in the name of Jesus Christ and I lose peace, forgiveness, reconciliation. I lose the chains that bind them. So, in the name of Jesus, through your blood, free them. Father, we know that you're the great cornerstone. You're the one that we can lean on. You are the pillar of your bride, the church. So God, in this room, as we stand with every head bowed and every eye closed, we know that we've dealt with shame and we've dealt with guilt and we've dealt with the pain But God, I'm coming to you to impress upon those, allow them to go and to get rid of it and to find freedom. God, I pray for deliverance today in the name of Jesus. So God, we love you and we thank you and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be rich. This altar call is for each and every person here. And if God, if you've impressed upon someone's heart, may they come to know you as Lord and Savior. To kneel as the old man to rise up in a new life. So God, we can't do anything without you. So we ask God for your help today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.